part six, Port Hamiltonian systems. What have we seen in the last part? We have seen partial differential equation. I've, I've told you how you can check when there are solutions, semi-groups, how you can derive inputs and outputs, transfer functions, etc. But it seems a little bit that somehow the PDE is somehow uncoupled to the state space. Of course, if you are discussing uh, spatial variation, then of course you know that you have to take a function. And I've took all the time, I took L2 functions. And sometimes for a weird counterexample, I took some weighted L2 spaces. It's a little bit strange that these things are so uncoupled. You think maybe they are more coupled. And of course, for real applications, or real PD, they come together. And that's really what I want to show now. So, I want to show in this part, among others, I want to show that this PDE has somehow a natural norm coming from the energy. We do this example. I have a coax cable, so in there there is a current and a voltage, they are distributed. So at the end of this coax cable I can have, I also have a voltage in a current. Both ends I have these variables. Let's look at the model. The model tells the following. The change of charge, so the current, is equal to the spatial variation, what we'll see if you look here at the bottom, of a current. Here you have a time variation of the flux equal to this. So Q is the charge, charge density, and phi is the flux. L here is the inductance, and C is the capacitor. We will use this example a lot, hence I will write it down on the blackboard. So here we have this PDE. With this system, with this coax cable, with this transmission line as it's called, because it just transmits voltage, there is natural energy, there is really a physical energy associated with this model. It's the integral over the whole spatial domain, from A to B, over these quantities. Let's now do the following. So here I have the energy where you see these state variables, Q and phi. And what I want to calculate next is the change of energy, the power. So what do I do? I just differentiate this expression for the energy with respect to time. In the integral there are two time functions, the charge and the flux. So I just differentiate that. However, I have this PDE. I have this PDE which relates the time change 
of the charge and the time change of the flux. Plug it in. What do I find? Just replace then the time derivative by the spatial derivative with a minus sign, etc. And what do I see? Looking at this expression, you can see, hey, is the derivative of the product of two functions. Hence, what do I have? I have the integral over the spatial derivative. Hence, I can evaluate this function exactly. This expression. Now there is something nice, namely Q over C is a voltage. Phi over L is a current. So, what do I find? I found this power balance. The change of energy can only appear at A or at B. So what do you see? There is no internal loss of energy. Basically, if you have this coax cable, can only, the energy can only change because of a voltage in a current at the boundary. Depending on what I put there, I can put energy in or if I, I can put energy out. Of course, if I close this, close this wire, this coax cable, then of course everything that will go out will also come in. And so there is no loss of energy. So this is a system which has no internal loss of energy and it, it can only lose energy or gain energy, but the energy can only change via the boundary. If we pose boundary conditions, for instance we put the voltage at A to zero and at the other hand we put a resistor, so we put the voltage equal to R times the current, then you see that this is really telling you that the energy will decay. Yeah, the first term becomes zero, the second term becomes negative. Assume now, for one moment, because I did this whole calculus by just calculating the change of energy, but I did that along trajectories, along solutions of this partial differential equation. What have we seen in the previous part, especially part two, is that the solutions of a PDE are sometimes related, or most times yeah, in this part two, they were always related to a C0 semigroup. So the charge in the flux at a certain time, you could see it as the outcome of a Z0 semigroup starting from the initial conditions. Assume now that this energy is precisely the square of a norm, that I can define a norm such that the energy precisely is the square of this norm. Energy at time t, by assumption, is then the norm squared of my state at time t, and I'm assuming that this state is given by this semi-group evaluating on the initial condition. And what is then the bottom line? Bottom line is that I have a, the derivative of the squared norm of the semi-group, which is the derivative of the energy, is negative. We know what we had 
This is a semigroup which somehow loses its norm. That was a contraction semigroup. So here we see we can put all these ifs away. Yeah? They are really sure if we can prove that there is a mapping initial condition to, uh, to the solution at time t is that is a semigroup. If the norm is, re or norm is really related to the energy, then we have that the semigroup that we will find will be a contraction semigroup with respect to that norm. Here once more I made clear that this norm, this energy, and the PDE are strongly related. I put them really in red. There is an L and a C. This L pops up in the PDE and it pops up in the energy equation. So if you give me an other coax cable with a different L, I will choose another norm. So this is really telling you, don't always take the L2 norm, no, take the natural norm being the energy. That's the natural norm. And so if L changes, you have to change the norm. They, they come together. This really has all to do, you can get to this point of view also by completely other way. If you do physical modeling and you use Lagrangian formalism, then precisely you get this. You start with an, with an energy which is not lost, it's conserved quantity, and then you can derive the partial differential equations like this. So I do it now reversely because we have seen PDEs and now we were wondering which norm to take. But here, that will be somehow the outcome, the norm that we take is, is in one, one correspondence to the partial differential equation we study. Different PDE, even if some physical constants change, we change the norm. So, the purpose. This is probably the longest introduction that I had for any part, but it's, it's also changing our point of view a little bit. What do we do? We want to introduce a general class of partial differential equations where the norm is related to an energy. Secondly, we want really to find boundary conditions such that this PDE with these homogeneous boundary conditions generates a contraction semigroup. We want also somehow naturally we want to, of course this is a system, so we want to have inputs and outputs. We will also discuss that. Transfer functions, we will also look at it. And finally, we will look at the stability of these systems. And what do you see in this whole list? Part 2, part 3, part 4 and part 5. For this class of systems, I will see what all the results that we have obtained in the previous parts can help us. In the introduction, I use this example the coax cable. And this example will guide us till the end of this part, but we will generalize it. We will see that it's an example in a general class. You can see it already on the transparency. At the bottom, I have given, a, I put this minus once in a matrix. And I have so the partial derivative of a factor. This factor part, I rewrite again. You see there is 
1 over the capacity, 1 of the inductance, times the state variables. So the state variables are now the ch charge in the flux, Z1, Z2. Here we have this matrix with minus 1 on the off diagonals I call P1. The matrix, which I call C with these state variables, I call H, curly H. And hence, so I make now a, a state vector consisting out of two parts, Z1, Z2, charge, flux. And the PDE can be written in this format. The change with respect to time is P1, matrix minus 1, minus 1 of the off diagonals, and then the partial derivative of H times Z, and that's it. So this is a very simple form of the PDE. What is the energy? This was the energy. If you remember what everything was, Z1 was the charge, Z2 was the flux, H was a diagonal matrix, precisely 1 over C, 1 over L on the diagonal, and I can write this energy as an inner product with, a, with this matrix in the middle. So here you see, again as in part 1, this H is appearing in the expression of the energy and it's appearing in the partial differential equation. This will now be my form. Yeah? So this will be my energy. What was on the previous slide will be my PDE. Here I say it once more. So we introduce now this class. So Z is a vector valued function. So we had in this coax cable, we had two states, charge in the flux, but it can be more. H will be matrix-valued function, so it depends on X, on my spatial position. And it must, for every X, it must be a real positive matrix. And furthermore, it must be, as a function of X, it should be a C1, continuously differentiable, and it should be bounded away from zero. So it's always boundedly invertible. If you think of it and for the, for the coefficients, what does this mean for the coefficients of the PDE? Basically that the coefficients never become zero. So the C and the L may never become zero and they are continuous functions. You could extend the theory a little bit if you, that you allow jumps, but it's, it's, it's not so important. This is basically giving the idea. In P1, not told you, P1 should be a matrix, a constant matrix, not depending on time or space, and it should be a symmetric matrix and real. So it's a real symmetric matrix. Now you saw that in the previous example, P1 was zero on the diagonals, minus ones on the off diagonals. So it's clearly symmetric. The energy you can see if you definitely if you write it in this format, if you think of H being the identity, then this is precisely the L2 norm. Yeah, the transpose times the vector, you get the norm of the vector squared. So this you can see as a weighted L2 norm. 
So you weight the functions depending on your physical parameters. Now we can up set up the abstract system theory. So we have our state space, functions on the interval a, b, with values in c, n. You could also take their r in, but in the previous parts I always took complex valued signals, so I do it again. But n, we will see it here, the n there, number of state components. For the coax cable we had a 2, but it can be more. We define the following inner product. There is this h. You precisely see that the norm squared associated to this inner product is precisely in the energy. The PDE is associated with this operator. Remember what we did with PDEs. We froze time. And when we looked at the right-hand side, so we, we formulated the PDE in a form, derivative with respect to time is something where, say, time derivatives are not appearing. In the right-hand side, we call the operator A. That's precisely what I do here. Okay, I write it down as a curly A, but it's an A. And it's just an operator. It's a differential operator where P1 and H are appearing. Now we have this nice balance equation. So for the norm, we have this balance equation. That's precisely what we had before in the coax cable. So what does it tell you if you take the AZZ in a product and you take it symmetrically, then you get something evaluated only at the boundary points. And as we have seen in the coax cable, you should see this inner product as being really the change of energy in this at the boundaries being the flow of energy through the boundary. Precisely the motivation behind this equation. But we are now in a more general case. We have P1 just being a symmetric real matrix and H being an, also a real symmetric matrix, but depending on the spatial. So we are now generalizing this result of the uh, coax cable. Let's prove this identity. First step is very easy. You just plug in the expression for this curly A, which was P1 spatially derivative of H times Z. There, there. At some places you see a transpose complex conjugate, etc. But remember, H and P1 are real. The signals, I assume, they are not real. Yeah, maybe complex values, but P1 and, and, and H are real and symmetric. So they are insensitive to taking a transpose. If you do that, then you see again an integral over a spatial derivative. They cancel each other. What do I get? The value at the boundary. And hence I have proved this theorem. Explaining the name. This system is called a port Hamiltonian system. Ports because that it's, there is a boundary where there is exchange of energy 
so a power flow at the boundary. And the Hamiltonian, that name comes from, this H is a Hamiltonian density. This energy is sometimes also called the, the Hamiltonian. So this is really in the Hamiltonian formalism. But there are now, it's not isolated, there are boundary ports. Think of the coax cable, it can exchange energy with its surroundings. That's expressed by the word port. These are not the only examples. Yeah, this coax cable is not the only example. So we go to more examples. And the funny one, I have it here, was the shift. We had it already in part two and we have seen it later also. But the shift is basically the simplest example of a port Hamiltonian system. So we had the shift from this side to there. And it's in our format. Because what do we need? We needed to write it as P1, spatially derivative, H times Z. Now, very simple here, you can take P1 and H both to be 1. So it's somehow the baby example, the simplest example of a port Hamiltonian system. The wave equation. It can be that you missed it. There are, you look at a lot of books on partial differential equations, they always do the wave equation. The part 2 till 5 never spoke about the wave equation. Why? Because the wave equation fits naturally in here. Normally you see the wave equation written like the second derivative with respect to time equals a constant times the second derivative with respect to space. It's somehow the wrong way of writing it. Better than to use the formulation I've given before with the P1 in the, in the H. But if you want to do it, if you want to write it out, what do you have to do? You have to first think about what are my state variables. In the first state variable you take the momentum, that is rho times the velocity, mass density times velocity, and then the strain. Yeah? So the wave equation that is somehow explaining how this is vibrating. But then wave. And of course you have then of course a strain, and there is somehow, and then there are two if you look at the energy associated to it, then there are really this energy which is associated to this momentum, which is the kinetic energy, and to the strain there is the potential energy. And the total energy is just the sum of the kinetic and the potential energy. Other one. These port Hamiltonian systems make it very easy to connect things. So here, I have drawn four transmission lines and I connect them. These k's are just connections. And what is basically, what do I say for these connections? Okay, Kirchhoff law has to hold. So I couple all these coax cables. Now I know what is the P1 in the H for each of these coax cables, for each of these transmission lines. Finding the big P, yeah, the P1 associated to this whole system, is just making a block diagonal matrix of all these P1s that you have. Now they were all the same, yeah, they all were all these zero on the diagonal, minus one on the off-diagonal elements, so this P1 
you have four copies of it. With the H, you also have then a block diagonal, but of every transmission line separately. And this H contains the physical parameters, so you could have four different H blocks. How do I model these connections? Now, that happens at the boundary of these sub-models. And so there, is a, there are boundary conditions. Basically, the current coming out here is the sum of the currents going in here. Kirchhoff law. But that happens at the boundary. Here you have, say, the current at B, and here you have the current at A. So you have then boundary conditions. Something at the boundary must be zero. Namely, the difference between these currents must be zero. And that brings us naturally to boundary conditions. So here, by the coupling, I'm imposing already boundary conditions, but we have seen before. A PDE needs boundary conditions, otherwise you don't know if you have a unique solution. Think of this simple shift example. If I don't say that it's zero there, I say nothing, then it shifts here, and then the solution in this part, so it's the, the, the initial condition is shifting like this, and in this part, everything is possible because I'm not saying what the value is at the boundary. So I have a freedom at this boundary. So I get a non-unique solution. Everything where the initial condition is shifted, connected to an arbitrary function here, will be a solution. So I need boundary conditions. So for these class of systems, I also need boundary conditions. Semigroups. We're now at the part where we can really show that these operators that we have defined, so these operators that are associated to this port Hamiltonian system, really generate a Z0 semigroup. And here is the theorem. Basically what I do, I define A, a normal A, italic A, on the domain of this curly A, but on a little bit smaller. I put it in the kernel of this B. And how should you read it? If it's in the kernel of B, then it means that this expression is zero. M is a matrix, so I do a matrix times a factor is zero. That's precisely because this, the column here consists out of boundary values of my state. This putting things to zero is precisely imposing a boundary condition. So, kernel of B I put my boundary conditions there. The PDE, the right-hand side of the PDE, is in this A. What is now the theorem telling? If this M has rank N, N being the dimension of the state space, yeah, the dimension of this set, set had N components, if for this elements in the domain of A, so Satisfying these boundary conditions, I have a strict, I have an inequality. So AZ, comma Z, Z, comma AZ is less or equal than zero. Then it generates a Z0 semigroup and it generates a contraction semigroup. Now, if A would generate a contraction semigroup, we have seen in part two, such an inequality should hold. What we also did in part two, we did the Luhmann-Phillips theorem saying that you need this inequality, but you also need and that the 
A minus the identity was surjective. The range of that operator was everything. You don't see it here, but it's hidden in the full rank of M, that M has rank N. Hence, what have we seen? By just imposing N boundary conditions, we have and that we have a contraction semigroup. And so you can do that very quickly. You just have to check this balance equation. But we have already the balance equation for this curly A, expressing it with all these bound with the states at the boundary. So it can be done very quickly, checking if, if a given boundary condition, the PDE is well posed. And I do it for this example again. Here we have the transmission line, and I've also written down what was the balance equation. It was the product of the voltage and the current at both ends, and then the difference. And it just follows, if you just look at H, and it follows in what was X1, that was the charge, X1 divided by C was the voltage, etc. So, let's now impose some boundary conditions. I say that the voltage at A is zero. And the voltage at B is R times the identity. If R is zero, then it just means that I put also the voltage to zero. Therefore, a positive R, I've put a resistor at that end. What should be M? M is given there, yeah? M should work on this H times the state in B and in A. And there you have it. You see, this is a two by four matrix. How many state components do I have? Two. What is the rank of this matrix two, even if R is zero? Hence, you see that this inequality is satisfied, concluding A with these boundary conditions generate a contraction semigroup. In this state space, yeah, the state space is depending on the L and the C. We can jump very quickly now to inputs. We had almost, and the, the theorem was almost ready for it. We had this curly A, we had this curly B, precisely coming from the boundary control. Why is it so logical that you apply boundary control here? Because of this. This, this system, if I just look at this of A and B, it was only exchanging energy at the boundary. So what is more logical than to control it at these boundaries. Yeah, you see, there is an energy flow. There, is, there I can influence the energy. So if I would like to stabilize the system, it's very logical to influence the energy of the system via the boundary. That's the way the system communicates with its surrounding. So, we have almost the same theorem. We have almost the same theorem back. A is the same, B is the same. Except I'm not saying that B working on Z should now be zero. No, it should be the input. That's the input. Here we have now the system. And this is now a boundary control system. What do I have to check? I have to check that if I make this curly A smaller by restricting it to the kernel of curly B, 
then I should generate the C0 semigroup. Hey, I have this inequality. Hence, by the previous theorem, this is satisfied. What more should I ch check? Okay, this curly e, A and B should be linear operators. Fine. I can also define the curly B on the domain of the curly A. I can define the curly B on the domain of the curly A. That's because curly B just means evaluation at one point. Curly A means I want to be able to differentiate it. What was the other thing? What was the last condition? I had to prove that this curly B was surjective. Now I only have n boundary conditions, so it just maps into, into Cn. Surjective is easy. Hence, using the previous theorem, this is a boundary control system. Transfer functions. We have seen and I take this because it's easy to visualize that this is the this system, this port Hamiltonian system, exchange information at these at its ends, at its boundary. So it's that makes it logical to to write down the inputs at the boundary, but it's also because the the energy flows out there to observe the system at these boundaries. So it's very logical if you have a port Hamiltonian system to define the inputs and the outputs at the boundary. Now to calculate this transfer function. What do you have to do? You have to plug in the exponential solutions. But look once more to this, to the, to the partial differential equation. What do you get? If you, if you just replace it by exponential solutions, you will get an ODE. But it's not an ODE with constant coefficients, because this L in the C can depend on the spatial variable. And then it may be very hard to find the exact solution. So I've chosen in, this, in the part on transfer function, I, I've shown you how you can calculate these transfer functions, but if you have a little bit more complicated, with the, the physical parameters are spatially dependent, then it can be very hard to solve this ordinary differential equation. However, this balance equation, yeah, the, the internal change of energy flows through the boundary, helps us then to, to derive properties of the transfer function. And sometimes knowing these properties is already sufficient to know how to stabilize it. That's here. I go to this example. What do I do? I put the voltage at B to be zero, and at A I put my input, and the current at A I put as my output. So I make it a single input, single output system. I could have defined two inputs, two outputs. That's fine. So I have the voltage at B to be zero, voltage at A, to be the input, current at A to be the output. We know this was a well-posed system, or was a well-defined boundary control system. Yeah, if we put the input to zero, then we are back to the theorem, then we had precisely the system voltage at both ends being zero. So let's do the transfer function in 
do it by exponential solutions. Now, if I put in exponential solutions, then I get at every term I get again, and this e to the power st. The spatially derivative does not affect this e to the power st. The time derivative makes it an s in front. So if I cancel all these e to the power st, I end up with this equation. Note that this first equation that you see really on the right-hand side, you see my operator curly a. So it basically says s of z0 is equal to curly a z0. Now, continue. This was the balance equation, the first line. But now I know, so now I replace z by z0, I replace the va, I replace by u, 0, ia, I replace by y0, vb is 0, so that term disappears. And what happens? I have this. This, this curly a z0 I can replace by s z0. And then I have this inner product and I can precisely write it as the real part of s squared norm. Have you noticed the mistake? There should be a 2 here. You may change it in your notes. But what is more important, I get here the product of u0 times y0. Hence, suppose that I have a transfer function and I know that y0 can be written as the transfer function at s times u0. replace y0 u0 by this, then it's the g of s times the u0 squared. And if s is positive, this is positive, this is positive, this is positive, so what do I know? The transfer function is positive. This is precisely known as a positive real transfer function. On the real x it's real, you can prove that for the real part of s bigger than zero, this transfer function really exists. And just by this property, by just looking at the balance equation, I can prove that this transfer function is positive real. It can be a, really a struggle to find the real expression for this transfer function because I have to solve this ordinary differential equation with non-constant coefficients. But without even knowing the exact expression, I know the property of the transfer function. You see that I did all the previous parts, I did it as a subsection of this part. Semi-group, boundary control, transfer function. Let's look at the stability. The stability has a beautiful result. You have again the same system, yeah, this curly A, curly b, which denotes the boundary conditions. Again, I'm assuming that this m is of rank n. And what do I need to check? I need to check that this dissipation, this az inner product symmetric, is less or equal than a constant, a negative constant, times the norm of my state at one of the boundaries. It is really a beautiful result, and you can prove it for this very big class of systems. 
again, we apply it yeah, for our coax cable, our transmission line. What did I do? At A, I put the voltage to zero. At B, I put a resistor. Of course, you can feel already I have an energy inside, and I close it at one end via a resistor. So you feel that energy will lose. But you could get strong stability. The funny thing is you get exponential stability. The proof is very simple. You calculate this energy balance, that was voltage, you plug in what you know, and it's minus Rib. The current at position B squared. Now you would like to find that it's less than the norm of the state at B. And that's just this. Where does that come from? And that is in what I will write on the blackboard. This is just a simple result. I've done it somehow upwards. I started then to write down what is the norm of the factor V i. I have the Euclidean space, so this is the norm. But what do I know about V? V at B is R times the current at B. So that I can plug in. And what you find, the norm of, this, of the state derived state at B is equal to 1 plus R squared times the current at B squared. And that proves the last equality. Hence, what's the conclusion? I put a resistor at one end and the other one I did nothing. Yeah? And I exponentially stabilize the system. Summary. This class of port Hamiltonian system clearly shows, and where I started off, that you should make the state space link to the PDE. They should be one pair. You should always think about, am I looking at the right state space? Not just pick any state space. No, try to find it logically to the system. And here the energy is the na very natural candidate. You see, if you do it, you get beautiful results. Basically, you only have to check, of this Luma Phillips, you only have to check the first inequality, which is very logical. Then it goes. You did not get weird counterexamples, things always going down, but not, never going to zero. And so somehow you have, by choosing these things correctly, fitting them to, together, you somehow avoid weird behavior. What is more important, this class of system, I'm only showing you a very tiny bit of it, just to
because I wanted to go through all these previous parts and I did not want to go into very complicated things. First thing you can extend to it, you can include higher derivatives. So I did it only now with one spatial, there was only a P1. Now, already the name P1 suggests that there is maybe also possible to have a P2 or a P0. And indeed that's possible. An example that, that needs a P2, so where the second derivative comes in, is the Schrödinger equation on a one-dimensional domain. So that's one, and so you can, for the for PDEs on a one-dimensional spatial domain, you can extend this further. But also, because I'm basically what am I talking about? I'm talking about PDEs with a natural energy. Now many PDEs coming from physics have this. For instance, the vibrating plate. So this, also this whole framework can be extended to higher spatial dimensions. Some theorems are still to be found. Yeah? So not everything I told you here extends easily to uh, higher spatial dimensions. And the last bottom line is, it need not to be an energy that you have to take as a norm, but you have to know somehow a conserved quantity. And that can help you a lot. So, this brings us to the end of the course. I did a lot. And I hope uh, you enjoyed it. Of course, this I only could give some details about some things, and I tried to give an overview. Of course, much more can be found in this book. But look at the size of it. You know that it can never be put on a DVD, yeah? So there is a lot of work for you to be done. And not only by reading this book, there is, it's an active research field. A lot of questions are still open. I can mention a lot. I can mention some of them. For instance, strong stability, characterization of strong stability. This extending of these port Hamiltonian systems to higher spatial dimensions, just to name a few. Then to implement all these control problems I started with. At the moment we still need to do a lot of simplifications and a lot more theory can help us to find better controllers. Because there's really a need out there. Yeah? If you talk to engineers, they are really at this moment interested in control problems involving a spatially dimension. So there is work for us to be done. Thank you. <laughs>